Father, we're thankful that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The man of God might be mature and thoroughly furnished unto every good work. We thank you for the providential preservation of the text and for the indwelling Holy Spirit. All through the merits of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, in his name we pray. Tonight, um, we're going to try to um, finish the doctrine of separation. And as we do this, um, I want to back out, back, back up a minute um, and go out and, and remind ourselves of what's going on here. Um, in the method of Thursday nights, what we try to do is uh, not teach a classical Bible study in the sense there's not any real exegesis, verse-by-verse type teaching on Thursday nights, because what we're trying to do is touch um, topically on the foundation behind Scripture. And you'll remember, and I'm mentioning this, by the way, because tonight we wanna, we're going to start drifting into uh, the contribution of apocalyptic literature and the unique role that literature plays um, in, the, in the Bible. Um, part of our objective on Thursday night class is to present a panorama of the history of the world interpreted through the scripture. And when we have listed events like this, uh, originally picked out the events because if you read the sermons, Joshua's sermon, you read Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, um, you read the classic preaching sermons in the scripture and start tallying on a piece of paper the, the events or the periods that are cited in those speeches. You discover there's a set of events that comes up again and again. And since the Holy Spirit chose to guide these guys in, in mentioning that, I consider the set of pretty must be very important from the standpoint of the Holy Spirit. So what we've done is we've gone from event to event. But more than that, in addition to going from the events, we tried to show that each of those events provides your imagination with enough material from the narrative to picture certain truths, doctrines. So we tried to marry particular doctrines to particular events. Now, this is not to say that doctrine can't, that those doctrines can't be married to other events. It's just that there's a preferential treatment. Um, for example, justification by faith, clearly in the New Testament is related to Abraham, the call of Abraham. Over and over again, it's related to that. So there's a structural integrity going on between an event, a historical event, narrated in Scripture, and the doctrinal truth that the Holy Spirit teaches the church. So that's what we've tried to uh, do. Now, the third thing, it's kind of a three-legged stool here. The third objective in Thursday nights has been not only the history, the event, but the truthfulness of the doctrine. And therefore, two years ago, when we were going through Genesis 1 to 11, we spent a lot of time going to geology, biology, uh, some of the cosmologies and some of that stuff, because... It's necessary to make a map in our minds um, 
that's, if we can think of the somewhere inside your head or in the hearts, wherever, um, we basically have a reality map. And this is tucked away somewhere in our heads, and we all have it. Um, no question that everybody has this. And most of our maps are composites. There are pieces of the Bible in there, and there's not pieces, there's pieces of paganism in there. And so we've got these, these, these maps, and when we respond to circumstances in our lives, uh, particularly when we respond rapidly and almost thoughtlessly, our whole psyche, our brains and everything else are just responding on the basis of they're being programmed from the maps. You look at it that way. Sort of like an operations, operational software versus those of you in computers. Um, the operating system sort of sets up how the application runs. And the problem in Christian growth is that we want to get down and make sure that the operating system at the lowest level, the most basic level of our heads and our hearts is structured scripturally. And that's not an easy process. Because half the time, we're not even conscious of the map. Half the time, we're just responding to event after event. And we don't see that the way we're responding over here should tell us something about the fact that uh, our operating belief uh, may not be too swiftly biblical. Um, we, we may know chunks of the truth. The problem is that we can take in pieces of, of doctrine, pieces of biblical stories, and so on. The next thing is to project them down into this map of reality. And one of the ways that happens, I think, it's a spiritual phenomenon. This is the Holy Spirit opening our hearts. But I think one of the conscious ways it happens is when we're convinced of the deep truthfulness of Scripture. And I am convinced from years of experience with myself and in Christian groups that there are chunks of a lot of unbelief in our hearts. And half the time we're not even conscious of it. But it's why sometimes you want... You, you encounter a situation and you wonder, well, why did I respond that way? Um, and it's probably because down at the deep map level, it hasn't been impregnated yet with enough scripture. And deep down being thoroughly convinced that this is true. So when we come to these events, what we try to do is show the truthfulness of these events so that God worked providentially in history to bring about these events. So when we read the narrative of the events, if we're convinced that this really did happen the way the Bible says it happened, now we have a little more force to the, to the doctrines that are being taught and reflected in those events. Well, the event that we've been working on is the event of the exile. And there's no question the exile happened. Absolutely no question. I mean, um, if there were questions about Genesis and Exodus and Moses and coming out of Egypt and the date of the conquest and some of the archaeology of Jericho and there's those questions. Yeah, there's there's debate about those things, but there's no debate about the exile. This is close enough in history so that uh, even unbelievers know this. So now the question comes: Okay, so what? Now we have 
the exile, we have Israel kicked out of the land. What is God doing? What's the meaning of this thing? And the meaning we said is that he's teaching more about sanctification. And right now, tonight, we're going to be dealing with uh, sanctification, in particular stressing um, the separation, the issue of separation from the world. Um, I put that first because there's actually two truths that seem to be emphasized in this event, uh, sanctification and then revelation and inspiration because of the rise of this new kind of literature for the first time in biblical history called apocalyptic literature. Don't confuse the word, by the way, if you come out of a Catholic church. Um, there's another word that sounds similar to this called apocrypha. And if you look in the Roman Catholic Bible, you'll see that between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's another set of books in there. And that's the apocrypha. You see things like First and Second Maccabees, the Wisdom of Solomon, and so on like that. Um, Protestant canon doesn't have them because the Protestant canon follows the Jewish canon. The Jewish canon separated the apocalyptic books. The Roman Catholic uh, canon follows what is called the Alexandrian thing. The Jews in Egypt kind of went along with this stuff. And so the Catholic Bible has these added books. The reason the Protestants don't have those, not only because the rabbinic tradition in Babylon with the rabbis, the Masoretic text doesn't have it, but also because doctrines are taught in the Apocrypha that, frankly, we don't believe. In the Apocrypha, there's prayers for the dead, for example. And so Protestants don't believe that, and it, the Catholic Church justifies it because it's in the Apocrypha. Well, we don't accept the Apocrypha as inspired scripture. But that word, Apocrypha, ends in A, the Apocrypha, that's a word that refers to those books. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about Apocryphal literature. The two, there's two different nouns, so don't confuse them. The apocalyptic literature that we've, we're starting to look at basically are sections in Zechariah, Isaiah, and the big book in the Old Testament is Daniel. And of course in the New Testament the book, this apocryphal literature is the book of Revelation. The style of all those books is the same. They all involve a dream and a vision and in the dream and the vision the author or the observer, the, the author of the text is the observer to the vision and it's interpreted for him by an interpreting angel. In almost every case, there's an interpreting angel involved in the, in the apocryphal literature. Uh, and the apocalyptic literature emphasizes themes that, was, that were not emphasized back here uh, before the kingdom fell. Um, back when the kingdoms were in decline, the kingdom divided, then we talked about prophetic literature. Remember what we said? What is a prophet? In the Old Testament, what was the function of a prophet? And if people would be clear about this, we'd really answer the question, do we have prophets today? And the answer is we don't. The gift of prophecy is not functioning today. Um, and, and this is another, it's a big bone of contention between the cults that believe the prop, gift of prophecy continues and God reestablished the Church of the Latter-day Saints and this kind of stuff. Um, because they believe and justify that on the continuing existence of the gift of prophecy. Uh, Roman Catholic Church in principle believes in the continuing gift of prophecy because of the institution of the papacy. 
Protestants do not believe in the continuation of the gift of prophecy. And this is why when you have the charismatic movement that's sort of halfway between Protestantism and Catholicism, you've got these unstable elements in it. The charismatic movement is unstable here because they, can, they keep talking about the gift of prophecy. Well, if they would be consistent, then if the gift of prophecy is already continuing, we should be adding scripture. Because that's what the prophets were supposed to do. And I, you know, nobody's added Revelation 23 to my understanding. So the gift of prophecy is looked upon in the Old Testament as classic writing prophets. These guys generated infallible, inerrant scripture. That's their function. Why? Because they're bringing indictments against whom? Against covenant breakers. They're bringing indictments against Israel, and at the same time they're bringing indictments against Israel, you remember, they continue the lawsuit and they press the prosecuting case up to a point, and then they always bring in grace, and they point to the fact that, yes, God is going to discipline, but eventually... Um, the conditions of the Abrahamic covenant will be fulfilled. So history is going to come to resolution and it will justify God's promises to Abraham. So that's the role of the prophet. And that's the prophetic literature that we've studied in the kingdom divided and the kingdom's in decline. Well now, in the exile, there's still prophets writing. In the restoration, there's still some prophets writing. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, books are written. There's uh, Zechariah. There's Malachi. So there are prophets there writing, too. But sandwiched into all this period of time is this rise of apocalyptic literature. And if you look at the content of apocalyptic literature, forget now the style. We talked about the style. The style is it's dreams, visions, weird symbols, and all the rest of it. But the content and purpose of the literature is to assure believers to give confidence to believers. Now, what we want to focus on tonight, because we're not going to get deeply into the apocalyptic literature, we're going to concentrate and finish up this idea of separation, doctrine of sanctification. But I want you to start thinking as we move and we get to the end of the lesson tonight, you'll see this start to emerge. The doctrine of separation presumes a situation in which believers find themselves. That was not true prior to the exile. The situation envisioned from the exile on is that believers are living outside the land, that believers are living in Gentile power structures, that the pagan institutions dominate. So you have isolated believers in all different pagan lands, unable to sacrifice, unable to worship in the temple, cut off from a line of living prophets, existing by all their lonesome selves in a pagan foreign land. That's the situation. And it's that situation that apocalyptic literature was addressed to. So you have to understand that background. Apocalyptic literature is addressed to believers isolated, suffering, and persecuted in a pagan society. And it's a literature of hope. And in that sense, the apocalyptic literature differs from prophetic literature. Now, if you observe the book of Revelation, what do you notice about the first three chapters? It's all about the churches. Now, thinking in terms of Old Testament, what type of literature is that? Is that apocalyptic or is that prophetic? 
Well, what is the content of those three churches? It's Christ is acting almost like an inspector general. He comes walking into the congregations and he says, you've done this good, but you've done this bad. That's much more like the Old Testament prophet. So the first three chapters of Revelation tend to be kind of like, in style, Old Testament prophetic literature. But starting in Revelation 4 and moving on to the rest of the book, it's very apocalyptic. And there, there's no address condemning the church. There's no address that uh, chews people out. It's, it's all the story of the persecuted believers existing in a pagan society that is going to be judged. And final terminating act of history. So that's how all this interplays, and that's why when you look up at the chart here and see exile, and you see two doctrines, the doctrine of sanctification and the doctrine of revelation inspiration. That's the connection. The doctrine of separation addresses the issue of believers living in a pagan land. How do they live in a pagan society? Obviously, in order to do that, they need extra support. And the extra support comes out of this apocalyptic literature. So tonight, we're going to focus, uh, continue focusing on the doctrine of separation. And again, if you'll turn to page 67 in the notes, we just mentioned a few things before 67 68 we're going to review, and then we're going to get into some text. Um, on page 67, we cite the two classic references. These Most believers know these verses. Um, separation from worldly culture, Romans 12, 2, and be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So there's the classic New Testament text on separation. And you'll notice that the separation emphasis in Romans 12, 2 isn't on where you're living. It isn't on what you're doing. The emphasis is on how you think. How you think in your heart. The separation of Scripture originates down at that map level, down at the basic operating system. That's where the failure is happening. So as the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the Scriptures, he's pointing out that it's not a matter of primarily of dress. It's not a matter of uh, a custom. It's not a matter of where you live. It gets back down to the matter of the heart and where our minds are focusing. That's where the separation occurs. That's the battle. Now, you can hold it in that area. You can endure an enormous amount of pressure. But if you lose it at that level, the least little thing will knock you out of the game completely. So it's that inner heart core that's necessary. And we mentioned, uh, we went through Psalm 137 last time with the music as an illustration. And then there are those two verses I cite in the, in the third paragraph. It's 1 Samuel 26 and 2 Kings 5. Because those passages show you how the Old Testament saint people thought about this. They use this expression to serve other gods as a synonym for living in a pagan land. Now we have to stop and think about that one. Because when, you, when David says he goes serves other gods, we have to be careful how we interpret that. I mean, David wasn't an idiot. He didn't go into Philistia and worship Dagon. It's 
not what he meant. He must have meant something else. So when he says, I, I had to go to Philistia, I had to be exiled, and I served other gods, it must mean something other than that he capitulated in his faith to Dagon and the Philistine gods. It must mean something else. Well, what else could it mean? And, and we have to infer this meaning from the, from the usage. And we infer that what they're talking about is when you are in a pagan land, you're living in a value system, another community's value system. What sets up the values in any community? The basic map. The, the map that dominates the most people in that community, the power leaders, how they think at the basic operating level. Now, what's 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 down there in that deep center of the heart? A religious issue. It's always the theological and spiritual that drives the ethical and the moral. So what David is arguing for, I think, is when he says, I have to serve other gods, he's, he's working with the Philistine kings. He worked with them. I mean, he trained some of their soldiers, um, was an employee of them. I served other gods. I served in another land with a different value system. And I had to live inside that sub-biblical value system. And I couldn't change it. I had to live there. It's God's will for me to live there. Now, that's the situation that, that, that we're talking about here. Down at the bottom of page 67, I mention, try to, try to state this to, to get into the, you know, how the Bible treats it, Separation involves every societal influence upon our behavior, whether it's local peer pressure, commonly assumed agendas, educational goals, and popularist causes. That's the things that do the programming of our maps. Because we hear it enough times, it subliminally propagates onto our heart maps. And we begin to believe it. It's insidious, and if you don't self-examine yourself, this stuff, it's like concrete. It just kind of goes down there and all of a sudden hardens up on you. And you know, gee, somebody poured concrete in it. Uh, because you just didn't see it coming. And we're all subject to this. I am, you are, everybody. And so that's why the scriptures tell us to concentrate, be not conformed in your minds. That's where the nub of the issue is. So everything we say has basically, even though tonight we're going to get into behavior, understand that the behavior only follows from the thought patterns. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. On page 68, we mentioned three false ideas of separation that have grabbed Christians over the centuries of church history. I use those three words. Remember, I used those three words back when dealing with Genesis and how people interpret Genesis. You see the same pattern play out, the same old issue. One is capitulation. That means we wholesale adopt the value system of our community, the value system of our society. It automatically becomes ours. We capitulate to it. We don't resist it. We don't examine it. We just surrender all and capitulate. And that basically is what liberal theology has done in the 20th century. It's been a, no separation. It's just been a total capitulation. Then you have accommodation. Accommodation is a sort of mild version of capitulation. 
in that accommodation is usually what believers do. Capitulation is usually what unbelievers do that are religious Christians, you know. I mean, they profess to be Christian. So capitulation pretty much is, is professing but unbelieving, quote, Christians. Accommodation, unfortunately, comes into our own camp. In accommodation, what happens is that because of my economic situation, because of my social situation, because of a, some situation personally, I find myself wanting to stay here. But then in my heart, I know the scriptures want me over here. So to get out of the bind, I come up with a gimmick. And the gimmick is, I can justify being here instead of over there if I reinterpret the scripture. So now, my methods of interpreting scripture kind of get greasy because I don't like the literal interpretation of scripture that would drive me over here to this position because there's some consequences I don't like to do that. So we have accommodation. Where you observe this, uh, where I personally observed a lot of it, is... When you find uh, in the academia, in professional societies, where being here means uh, I get grants to do research, um, I publish peer-reviewed literature, um, I teach in a position where I could be professionally embarrassed if I let it be known I was a biblicist, that sort of thing. And so, therefore, I, I want this position. I mean, I'm secure here. I really don't want to go over here because I undo all this. If I come over here, so I'll kind of take, take the Bible and leave it. It's sort of a cafeteria approach to Scripture. Then we've come to the to real gutsy people. Now, these people really want to separate. And over the history, there have been whole movements of people who have done this. And this is, they say, yeah, we'll fight society, and we'll form our own Christian enclave. And we will physically separate out from society. And usually you can see these groups because what they inevitably do is they, they come over and preserve the culture and lock it up and freeze it. And so the rest of the world goes on and they still stay frozen at whatever the milieu was, the, you know, whatever the historic date was that they did this thing. Um, the monasticism is an example of physical separation. I mean, it, people, the Roman Empire was putrid. And I can understand wanting to just get out of the system. And so you can understand why they, they just, they wanted to learn. There was no learning in the pagan society. They wanted to go read. They wanted to study. They wanted their Christian life. So let's just get out of here and come on over here, a nice, safe monastery. Well, the problem is the sin nature comes with it because you're not separating from the flesh. The other problem is you're destroying the evangelistic link, so it becomes a problem. So we, last time, gave that very extensive quote from J. Gresham Machen, who had thought long and hard about this, and the date of, of uh, footnote 12 and footnote 13 is about 1914, I believe. I think the footnotes... Um, in the handout tonight, you have the footnotes on them, but I think that was 1914, somewhere around there. Anyway, it was at the beginning of the 19th, uh, 20th century, and Nation was a fundamentalist um, professor at Princeton Seminary. Uh, they were under a lot of pressure at the time. 
um, the historical situation was rapidly unfolding to a separation at Princeton over some pretty profound stuff. And so Machen had this very good balance. In, in, in quote 12, quote number 12, he mentioned that you can't separate from the arts and the sciences and so on. So what Machen is telling, and by the way, this, this is an address he gave to the seminary class in September when the, when the school year opened. He gave this address. And he was trying to teach the guys that would be preachers what they should expect. And he was warning them, don't knock the arts and the sciences per se. Critique them on the basis of scripture, but don't neglect them. Because if we don't go out there and we don't have Christian artists and we don't have Christian musicians and we don't have Christian people in these other areas, what then happens is we lose them by default. We lose vast areas by default. And then it comes down to quote 13. The result of that is, and Machen was, was prescient in here and seeing this, um, the result is that our evangelism goes down the tubes. Because you lose the ability to communicate in language that speaks. What you do is we tend to develop an evangelical language. And we start witnessing in the evangelical buzzwords. And, you know, it's, it's like speaking English in France. You can't do it. You have to have translation. So that's what Machen's whole point was. Now... In the last paragraph on page 68, which uh, sort of starts to set up the theme for tonight, is I point out that wisely separating from worldly culture while citizens of a pagan society requires great alertness, starting from a self-examination of our hearts, hard work, and dedication. It requires a peculiar resource. And here's the resource, and now you can see the connection between separation and apocalyptic literature. Watch this now. The resource, a vision of God's sovereign control over, in back of, underneath, and behind every pagan power that pushes on us. You need to know that. Because what happens in the tug of war in our hearts is that we need to have the ability to envelop. Remember back two, two years ago or something when we were talking about apologetics? I drew this little diagram and I said, if this is, if this is a, a, an unbelief segment that is impinging upon you, the way you, you deal with that is not by a direct approach of trying to deal with it. What you try to do is envelop it within a scriptural framework, just like a, an amoeba. Because that's what the other side does to us. They'll take some Christian truth. And I'm sure people in your family, you've talked to the gospel, you've tried to witness to somebody, some friend, neighbor, or someone in your home, family, and you'll, you'll give your testimony, I became a Christian, here's what happened to me. And you think you've communicated just as clearly as you can do it. And then you wait five minutes later, and they're talking about, well, gee, you know, in the psychology, in your your personal psychological makeup is thus and such, and I can see how that might work for you. But you see, I'm not built like you are psychologically, and that's not going to work for me. What's happened? 
What happened there? See, what happened was that you witnessed, and here's some truth. What they did is they took their unbelief and surrounded it, interpreted it, and changed it. They enveloped it. They surrounded it. They sucked it up, digested it, and assimilated it within their system. So what we have to do with unbelief is we have to use the same tactic. We have to suck it up, envelop it, reinterpret it, and assimilate it into a biblical framework. Guess what apocalyptic literature does? What is the emphasis in Revelation, Zechariah, and Daniel? What's the con- what are all those dreams about? Let's, turn, let's look at the text. See if we can watch this. Let's turn to Daniel 2. We've been there before. But this was a new thing that God had done. Keeping in mind the historical situation. Daniel chapter um, 2, let's start with um, verse 31. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. Again, background. What was Daniel's situation when this happened? Think, personally. What was Daniel doing? He was young. He was all alone. He was a political hostage. He had been deported from his country. He basically was a prisoner of war and a hostage. And worse than that, he was being groomed and decultured. You know that communists did this in China. The Cultural Revolution of Mao Zedong, a horrible time in China. And he would have re-education camps. No, they just go through people. If anybody had a halfway manifestation of in thinking for yourself, you, 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 out of here. Got special classes for you. So you go to this concentration camp and you get indoctrinated. That's where Daniel was. Remember, they gave him a new name, tried to change his identity, tried to make him lose his Jewishness, tried to make him forget the Old Testament try to make him worship other gods. This is the kind of guy. Now you see he's a believer, lone, isolated, in this overwhelming pagan environment. Now he needs to have a vision and a perspective because every single day of his life he's getting another vision. He's being crushed. He's being made to feel like he's all alone. It's a hopeless situation. You're never going to see your homeland You're going to lose your Jewish identity. Everything's against you. So, through the king and so on, he he comes and he interprets this vision. Verse 31, O king, you were looking, there was a great statue, and we went into the statue last time. The head was made of gold, the breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, partly iron, partly clay, and stone was cut without hands, and then it struck the statue and the feet. And so what you have is four kingdoms here. Now, what's, what's going on in this vision? What's going on is that Daniel, here he is all by himself, and he, you know, 
from his perspective, here's the king. That's the power. Here he is, victim. What God is saying through this vision is that this guy is part of a system. It has four parts. It's the head, the uh, breastplate, the legs, and the feet. Four kingdoms. And over and above this is God's plan. Because this thing is going to be crushed. Fifth kingdom. By a stone made without hands. Not a human origin. So now, what does that do? You see what's happening in this vision? Here's this Gentile pagan power that at first looks so big to Daniel. But what it's doing is it's being enveloped. The pagan power is being itself a puppet of God Most High. That God controls even that. So Daniel, when you look out and you see this pagan state coming at you with their re-education programs, with all their political power, with the threat of capital punishment, with imprisonment, with torture, you just understand. I am in control of this God. And one day, these all four of these gods will be absolutely crushed. And when I get done in verse 35, it will be like chaff in a summer threshing floor. That's the vision of apocalyptic literature. So we like to know all the details and what corresponds to what kingdom, and, and that's a whole study in itself, and we're not going to get into all that. But what we want to get on Thursday night class is get the big picture. Apocalyptic literature cuts pagan power down to size. Apocalyptic literature says... God has the final answer in history. Now, this apocalyptic idea is that there's a plan of God for history, and the plan controls paganism. So when paganism starts to threaten me as an individual believer, I look in back of the paganism through my apocalyptic revelation, and I understand, ha, God Most High has a plan in this. I can bide my time. I know the end of history. I've read the last chapter. I know how this is coming out. So that immediately renders it impotent. I'll give you an illustration of this. Um, Somewhat out of order tonight. But if you'll turn over to page 71, I have two quotes over there. of what this, when you have a map or a basic structure in your heart that is so powerful, it is a vision that is so encompassing that it literally dominates every area of history. The strange thing about this, remember I said Romans 12, 2, separated starts in our minds. If our minds are properly loaded and are referencing the proper map, of reality and have a basic structure here that's biblical. Look what it does to the behavior pattern. Now, there's two quotes on page 71. One is an unbeliever imitation of what I'm talking about. 
And I deliberately picked the communists. Because in our own generation, or our own century, communism is a Christian heresy. What? How can you say communism is a Christian heresy? It's a, I thought communism is atheistic. Yes, it is. But do you have any understanding of where the power is was in communism? You know what it was? It was a philosophy of ultimate victory. So I could sacrifice, they could bomb me, they could torture me, they could kill me, I didn't care, because I'm on the winning team. The capitalism will be destroyed. Communism will finally triumph. In other words, communism had a vision of progress to victory. Now guess where they got it. I checked this out one time. There's two sources, two pathways, where communism got this idea. Fascinating story, if you ever you're interested in history, you want to chase this down sometime. But one path, one thing goes from Karl Marx back to Hegel, and Hegel kept talking about these kingdoms of history. You know where Hegel got his idea of kingdoms and progress in history? Daniel. Now isn't this interesting? two-step process. Marxism came out of Hegelian philosophy and Hegel read the book of Daniel and captured the idea of progress right from Daniel chapter 2. The other source, there were people along with Marx, were the German radicals. German radicalism. And German radicalism got into Daniel. So what we have in Daniel chapter 2, the idea that history is progressing to victory for one side or the other, gave the framework for the faith and the hope of communism. And on page 71, to show you how effective this was, this is a citation from intelligence work that was done by a contractor for the U.S. government, the Rand Corporation, who interviewed prisoners of war during Vietnam. This was done in the early days, 68 and 69. The B-52 terror bombings had just begun. And, of course, these were powerful bomb, bombing missions because the idea was we couldn't see them in the jungle, so we would just bomb the jungle and destroy everything in the jungle. To give you an idea of the bombs that were used, when you go hear big booms at Aberdeen Proving Ground, you're probably hearing 120-millimeter uh, cannon fire, which has a TNT equivalent of about five pounds. But the B-52s are dropping were 1,000-pound bombs that had an explosive power of something like seven or 800 pounds of TNT. When those bombs went off, they would break every eardrum within a half a mile. So there are thousands and thousands of Vietnamese now that are totally deaf because they've ruptured drums just from being near the bomb when it went off. I had a friend of mine who was in an infantry group who was pinned down by fire, and he, he called for artillery support and got it actually from the USS Missouri that was lobbing 1,000-pound bombs and form bullets from its guns. And he said that when he sat there, he was watching this thing, and it went overhead, and because he was surrounded up front of his lines, he couldn't, couldn't move forward. And he said, when those things hit, 
that was the most amazing thing that ever happened. He says, the trees just went up. And he said he could see the ripple come to him on the ground. You know, you've seen water ripple. The ground ripples. And he says, I was standing there, all of a sudden I fell on my face. That's the shock of a thousand pound bombs. And what was tremendously psychologically powerful about the attacks, the B-52s would fly very high so you couldn't hear them. And one would, they would fly a pattern. So that one of them would just boom, 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 boom. The next one, boom, 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 boom. We did the same thing in, in Desert Storm, except before, 24 hours before the bombing raid, we would send fighter aircraft over and drop leaflets. Tomorrow night, 7 p.m., you better move or you're going to die. Because this is the real estate that's going to be rearranged starting at 7 o'clock tomorrow, tomorrow evening. And we, we would tell them in advance exactly what piece of ground was going to be dealt with and what time it was going to be dealt with because we were saying, you can't stop us. So tomorrow at 7 o'clock, no warning whatsoever other than the notes. Boom, boom, boom. Bomb after bomb after bomb blew up. And this is what terrified these guys. Just the psychological de- detonation. If you get any closer, it turns your insides to jelly. Just, you don't have to be burned. You don't have to have shrapnel wounds. It's just the pressure of the explosion will destroy you. So these are young kids, 17 and 18 years old, that had endured those kind of attacks. 